Uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, glad you could make it to today's event, which has got a, a really impressive lineup, including this panel, I must say. Um, our topic is humanitarian implications of cyber conflicts, uh, something that we haven't, I haven't done a lot of work on, but I think it's a great topic, and we've certainly talked about it. Um, this will be a conversational format. I asked for uh, not to have the, the high mass thing where you sit at a table and face the audience. They didn't do it, but we still will try for a conversation. Um, my two speakers are Shanti Kalathil, who is the Senior Director of the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. Our other speaker is Gary Korn, who's a director and adjunct professor at American University at the Washington College of Law. And he's the director, or will be the director starting on October 1, of a new technology law and security program. Um, both of them actually know what they're talking about, so that's a, that's a, that's a plus, right? Um, I, can't, I don't know if I can say the same for me, but I'm gonna kick things off. Uh, this is a different topic from a lot of what we usually talk about here at, on cybersecurity, but it's one that has increased salience. Uh, uh, I was at some UN discussions last week and topics like the effect of the media, the effect on civilian populations, the effect on development of cyber actions all came up as, uh, as something of concern. So I thought I'd ask, uh, ask uh, Gary and Shanti to start by telling you what they think is the most worrisome humanitarian implication of cyber conflict. Uh, Gary, do you wanna start? And then we'll go to Shanti. Sure, thanks, Jim. Um, and, and let me also note, <clears throat> I know it says Colonel Gary Korn. Um, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, it's not because I wanna start like a chicken, fried chicken chain or anything. Um, <laughs> I am just recently retired from the Army, um, and for the last five years I was the senior legal counsel to U.S. Cyber Command, so that's where I've dabbled in the cyber arena um, for a little while. Um, I mean, a, a, as a broad level, the issue is the obviously the the incredible interconnectivity with everything um, that we do and and between the civilian sector and the government and military um, in the technology space and that that opens up um, lots of different avenues for na you know ne'er-doers um, and if you are not a country that that tends to want to respect the rules of the game, the law of armed conflict, while you're engaged in armed conflict, then you have um, you know, a broader set of targets that you can kind of go after that would include civilian targets. You know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is um, I think there are, there are various levels of sophistication of cyber actors out there and how well you can um, contain the effects that you want to generate. Not all cyber operations are catastrophic. There are a lot of things that can be done that actually, I'd say, um, are beneficial for humanitarian concerns, and we can come back to that, but if, if you're not discriminated in the use of what you're doing, if you're using a tool that you lose control of, that's self-propagating, there, there's all sorts of aspects to the technology that could you know, get out of control and start to really impact um, the civilian sector. And I think when you tie that in now with uh, the the explosion of the Internet of Things and the 
probably where security is the most lax um, out there. Your, your refrigerator now is, you know, a potential problem um, or a vulnerability point, right? Um, so you add in all these devices that people are growing more and more dependent on every day and they can be put at risk. That's a concern. Thank you, Jim, and um, thanks to CSIS for this panel. I should just note at the outset, I'm not an expert on international humanitarian law, and um, Gary and Jim are the experts on cyber conflict, so I, I will try to bring um, kind of a different perspective, maybe one that focuses more on the, um, I guess, the human dimensions of being wrapped up in some of these big issues. But I would say that what really concerns me is that there are powerful states out there, and especially I look in particular at authoritarian regimes, who consider vast populations to be legitimate targets of cyber operations. But those, those populations themselves may be either unaware or unprotected. And so you have this vast um, kind of difference in asymmetry, I would say, where increasingly I think civilians are going to be wrapped up in cyber conflict, at least cyber conflict the way that these states view it. And um, these populations, whether in areas of humanitarian crisis or not, um, they're just, they're not prepared, they don't see themselves as participants in cyber conflict, and so probably they're not taking necessary precautions as a, just a, a matter of course. And I think that that's something that will affect both humanitarian options, humanitarian operations, but also just basic aid delivery and all sorts of um, different aspects of the broader humanitarian assistance and development space that we're not really thinking of yet. What are you seeing, uh, what are you seeing when company, uh, countries try and use cyber techniques to manipulate populations? What's, what's the favorite tool? Well, I think it's evolving. You know, I think recently <clears throat> there was news of what was believed to be a Chinese government uh, attempt to target and surveil Uyghur ethnic populations outside of China. So for those who are not tracking this, the Chinese government has, for what it deems reasons of security, put up to or possibly more than a million um, Uyghur ethnic minority civilians within re-education camps inside China. Now this has primarily been seen by the Chinese government as a domestic <coughs> issue, but increasingly it's using cyber tools to target Uyghur populations outside of China's borders. So there was, I believe, um, Project Zero highlighted that there was an effort, uh, and here's where I get into your realm, a watering hole type of operation where zero-day exploits on iOS as well as Android and other phones were put in place so that any Uyghur ethnic minorities outside of China who visited these popular websites would then have their devices be infected. And in that way, the Chinese government allegedly, it was a, I don't know if there was clear attribution or not, but they were able to gain access to a whole network of these populations. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's sort of my pile-on alibi. It's a great point. I mean, we've, obviously we've seen this where the convergence or the lack of separation between cyber operations and information operations and, you know, what some would term information warfare um, and, and using the new technology to essentially attack, in the loose sense of the word, the cognitive space and the impacts that can have. We saw this with our elections, right? Um, and that is becoming sort of, you know, a, a more ubiquitous method um, to both internally 
but also, as you point out, externally um, to influence not just state to state relations, but also if you have, um, from your perspective as a, as a state, you're, you're, you know, if you don't like what's happening um, in Hong Kong and you want to try and contain that and change the, the information space outside, then any, any interested parties outside potentially could be the subjects of your influence operations. And we were talking before we came down, um, you were at a conference at Buenos Aires last week or last month where, you know, people were saying, well, no one would ever do this to me. Is that right, Ashanti? Yeah, it was, it was more just, you know, in sort of offline conversations with folks who are very plugged into the, I would say, the internet right space and so on. Um, I think there was not as much of an awareness of the ways in which particularly internationally-minded authoritarian governments are engaging in this space mm -hmm. in particular. It's not to say that those are the only ones, but I think you are seeing an increasing awareness of these types of options by, for instance, the Russian government, Venezuelan government, and so on. And frequently, those two efforts will overlap in ways that um, people on the ground are maybe less aware of than they, than they should be, because they do affect the idea space, as you say. You know, mm -hmm. if you call it, whether you call it the cognitive domain, the <clears throat> idea space, right. you know, there are certain narratives that are being pushed, and they can get taken up very easily without people really being aware of what's happening. So one of the reasons we were doing this event is there's a, some people say that, you know, maybe in some ways, Cyber is better than kinetic when it comes to human humanitarian effect. And there's two parts to that, that at least two, that we could talk about. The first is um, one of the things we mispredicted is, that, you know, everyone thought cyber attack would be against critical infrastructure and all that. And I was at an event where somebody said the real target of cyber operations is your brain, right? And so how do we adjust to that? How do we think about how I, the international humanitarian law fits with that? The second part is, um, is, this, is it better, though, for, uh, from a humanitarian perspective? Why is it, it's better than, say, kinetic weapons? Is that a fair statement? Or do we want to look at the other, the other side that manipulating people's brains is actually as bad as physical manipulation? So two questions, uh, does the law work for this stuff? And um, is it, if you were going to rank humanitarian risk, where would you put cyber? Let me see if I can step through that. Um, it was a really inarticulate question. No, no, it was, it was, it was good, and it's, it's, it's got um, challenging components kind of to each of it. I, I was at a, an event um, with the ICRC back in November. Uh, they've published a report on the potential human costs of cyber operations, right? Um, and I, you know, at their request, and, and I put up a, a blog on their, po on their blog post uh, where I said the potential human costs of issuing cyber operations. So when you're talking about using cyber capabilities as a means and method of warfare and armed conflict, um, if I need to disrupt the enemy's communications, the traditional method for doing that is with kinetic means. I'm gonna blow it up. And obviously there are collateral concerns um, when you start blowing things up. That, that immediately implicates a lot of humanitarian concerns. If I can do a very targeted and discreet cyber operation that takes down those communications without ever physically harming anybody, I think that's absolutely 
um, you know, a positive for military, I mean, you know, humanitarian concerns. And the law of armed conflict, I would say, generally is structured and can deal with that when you're talking about delivering effects against um, things. Mm-hmm. You know, be they the, the, the physical components that you might affect or the you know, processing capabilities and even some of the data thereon. Now, when you move to this area of ideas or cognitive space, information operations are and have long been a part of warfare and they're generally not regulated by the law of armed conflict. So that, that's somewhere where you know, you've got to start doing some harder thinking and is, are there gaps in the law there to deal with something that now the technology has, has just really empowered in a very different way than traditional propaganda. And I think buried in that too, there's obvious free expression issues and challenges and how you might approach regulating that or dealing with that. Um, and I think there's a very um, important distinction in that between overt propaganda, uh, things that the populace can look at and understand where it's coming from, and covert deception and manipulation operations um, from another state. Shanti, where does the media fit into this, both old media and new media? And new media seems to be the better delivery vehicle, but what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think essentially we're talking about the environment we're in now where uh, disinformation has been the one of the key political crises of our time. I think where societies all around the world are struggling with this, both um, in old media and in new media. And I think the confusing aspect of this is that all of this is now, I think we used to, all of us kind of sit in different spaces, and yet we are all now on this panel trying to make sense of it, because I think the lines have blurred, right? Yeah. I mean, th- this is part of the key challenge. Mm-hmm. I think from the point of view of some states, there's really, it's kind of this continuum between cyber and all these other things. And that's part of the definition of this, right, by certain states who would prefer to define, for instance, information security in the cyber context as including speech, content, um, issues that harm national security, which from an authoritarian regime standpoint can really include just about anything politically sensitive. So there's always been a bit of this gray zone, but I think that gray zone has expanded even more now. And that's why I think all of us who are involved in this space, whether we're coming at it from a humanitarian angle, from a development assistance angle, from a democracy support angle, we all have to be aware of these dynamics. And the problem is I think we still are kind of viewing things through these traditional buckets, so it allows us to kind of step back and get a better sense of the challenges, which I think we're trying to do now. So. No, I, that's one of the reasons I was glad both of these people could do it, because the old way we used to think about cybersecurity doesn't capture what's going on fully. I mean, it's still there, sure, and somebody could probe critical infrastructure, but that's not the whole space anymore. So, you know, we want to think about how do you define rules for this gray zone? What are the effects that we need to worry about when it comes to populations? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the information aspect of this is, um, you know, I'm not saying that you couldn't use certain techniques that are that involve, you know, malicious sure. access and exploitation and authorized access of systems. But over, by and large, it is creating accounts on social media through the regular means of creating accounts, but doing so under false pretenses, right? and then pushing content that is um, very targeted and, and intended to influence in a certain way. 
And so the recipients of that really don't understand where that's coming from, um, and then it, it generates a feedback loop. That's not, you, you can have the greatest firewalls in the world, that's not going to stop that process. Well, let me just go back to something you had said before, which is sort of referencing the Internet of Things, which I see is also in the description here. But I think the flip side, we, we talk a lot about content and information operations and so on. But I think the flip side of that, and this is relevant to the, um, the issue with the Uyghur population that I mentioned before, is that I think surveillance has now expanded dramatically and the um, the realm of devices and other things that can be exploited for surveillance has also been expanded dramatically. And I think that that is also now part of the considerations, particularly in a humanitarian conflict or anything, you know, conflicts where there are humanitarian aspects to it, um, that populations are now being put at risk, not simply through actions that they do or a device that they may have, but just sort of the data that they're emitting all the time yeah. um, can be exploited and targeted again um, by determined states that wish to you know, take advantage of that. We could actually switch the title around if I thought about it before I would have. Cyber implications of humanitarian conflicts. <laughs> so where does surveillance fall on this? I mean, the, the biggest one that people are concerned about, at least in some places, is facial recognition. You know, what does that have? for uh, human, you could see the benefits of it, you know, because it's a way to manage identities. And so if you're providing benefits to a refugee population or you're dealing with people who have been displaced in a conflict, your facial recognition could be really helpful. But whenever you say facial recognition, everyone gets really nervous. So how do things like this, how does the, the uh, identity management, facial recognition side of this fit into the humanitarian angle? So, uh, you know, I was at a very interesting conversation yesterday at the National Academies of Science that was really looking at some mm -hmm. of these issues in close detail. And um, some of the things that came up were, um, you know, facial recognition, for instance. Obviously, there can be some mm -hmm. benefits, but um, it, the, <laughs> the algorithms that go into that are necessarily reflect the values that are used to construct that, and so it can actually exacerbate um, discrimination, it can exacerbate things that it's meant to solve. Um, but more broadly, I think in a humanitarian, I, I would say, you know, in these situations where maybe assigning some kind of digital identity to better track people mm -hmm. to assist, for instance, IDPs, or to assist delivery of assistance, but simply assigning that digital identity and sort of um, making that information packaged and extracting data in a certain way can also put people at risk in ways that maybe are not fully evident at the time. And that has to be thought through from a humanitarian assistance delivery perspective, the ways in which there are populations who, just by virtue of, of benefiting from the assistance, are now kind of wrapped in, their data's been sucked up. Maybe they're not fully aware of or haven't consented to the ways in which it's being used. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you did, where does privacy fit into all this? I mean, data protection is one thing, but you know, where do privacy rights fit in? Um, I won't say any more because I'll just get in trouble. No, I mean, it's, this is one of the, you know, fundamental and core questions of our time. It, it is, um, I, I think probably everybody in this room makes some conscious decisions every day to put your privacy at risk for, for gain in your online banking, in using iPhones with facial you know, recognition with this, and, and knowing we don't 
you know, think on it a lot, but we know that all that information is being sucked up and, and housed somewhere. And we've sort of said, well, it's private sector, it's Google, it's this one, it's that one, so okay. Um, and, you know, and then there, there are implications to that. You're putting it at risk um, because even if you can trust your own government not to touch that, that, that doesn't mean that a foreign government that might find that data um, valuable and something it can use in its manipulation operations or, or more won't steal that data and exploit it. Um, but our notions of privacy and reasonable expectations of privacy under the Fourth Amendment are, you know, there's a kind of a fundamental clash with the way we are putting so much out there. Um, I personally think that, um, you know, the trends in the court and watching this develop, I think we're going to get to a point where the notion of reasonable expectation of privacy in the U.S. is is altered to a reasonable expectation of privacy vis-a-vis -vis the government, right? Don't you think it's already there? No, I mean because if you know under under you know traditional doctrines, if if I put my personal information on the sidewalk mm. in the trash, there's no I can no longer claim a reasonable expectation of privacy in that. If I put it out there, if I share in this forum, I you know confirm that there's no government representatives or agents here, and I put you know information out, um, I've I've still surrendered any reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. Um, but we're doing that every day, like in mass amounts. And so sort of the, the, the consequence of that, the logical endpoint is you surrender all expectation of privacy, or do you? And that's why I think it's, it's going to have to be calibrated. So who owns refugee data? Is it the, their state of origin? Is it the host country? Is it the UN? I mean, how does that work? When, when I used to do this stuff a long time ago, we never even thought about it. It's just like get their name, give them a card, you know, put them in, put them in somewhere where they were safe. Well, I think We didn't think about it, but now it's, it's all over. But that's, the, that's part of the issue is sort of thinking through the second order consequences of trying to track populations or track people or recipients of assistance more efficiently might also put them at risk. Hmm. And I think getting to the privacy issue, I mean, it's not just about people's own information. It's about it's about the metadata that allows for identification of demographic traits, that allows for the aggregation of, of huge reams of data that can be exploited in different ways. And so even if we think, what's this, you know, you're collecting minimal amounts of data, but actually when it's aggregated with a whole bunch of other things, it can provide a lot of information to certain actors who would like to get a hold of it. And, you know, the privacy question is one that's so huge and we'll, we, we can't mm. settle that within several weeks of having this conversation. But, but I think it's relevant to this because especially if you are, um, for instance, again, an IDP or a refugee, a migrant, somebody who's in need of humanitarian assistance or is wrapped up in a conflict, you're not thinking about that. We have the luxury of, say, thinking. We, we think we give some kind of implicit consent every time we go on, you know, we buy something through Prime or whatever it is, you know. But vulnerable populations don't have that luxury. They're really just sort of thinking primarily about their lives. They're not thinking, well, I'm handing over my data to, to somebody, and maybe it could be exploited in some way. And so I think we have to think more about, you know, are, we, are people really giving their consent in that? in that situation. We kind of moved a little bit away from the idea of a cyber conflict. Just bear with me on that one for a minute because I'm not sure it really exists, right? Are people gonna have a cyber war 
purely cyber, or is cyber conflict this kind of informational fighting that we've seen that's been very effective? And then what are the, the effects, the humanitarian effects of these conflicts? And so for the, I'm gonna make an assertion and you can disagree with it. For a cyber conflict that is paralleling a kinetic conflict, the, it's fairly easy to figure out how the humanitarian aspects would work. For cyber conflicts that move into this new area of information manipulation and deep fakes and all that stuff, we, maybe we don't have as good an idea. Is that a fair? Uh... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'd couch it slightly different. I mean, I, 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 this whole, the term cyber warfare drives me crazy <laughs> because warfare is warfare. There, there is no, you know, war has never been contained, I've said this many times, to the domain in which it is initiated. Where did right? you used to work? Never yeah. <laughs> mind. Right, so you, you warfare is warfare, and, and you then have to go through the question of whether you're using something that is a legitimate and lawful means or method to execute your military operations in accordance with the rules that govern how you can do those things. So uh, cyber warfare, it's never going to be something that's contained solely within the cyber domain. Um, I think this is more a question of, though, th these activities that are happening on an increasing scale outside of armed conflict, below those thresholds that trigger the rules um, that balance military necessity and humanitarian protection, that, that are the law of armed conflict. So if you're outside of that, the rule sets are different and not as developed. And so what rules, and at least from an international law perspective, do govern when states are engaging in these operations that don't amount to warfare and are outside of an armed conflict? Whether it's having an effect, right? Again, you might, you might be, um, well, I don't know, DDoSing the financial sector in New York, right, below a, an actual armed conflict. That has impact. It can have cascading humanitarian impact um, or the, the information operation space as well, which isn't governed by those rules that we traditionally think about for targeting and these kinds of things. Shanti, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the idea that the the information operation dimension of all of these things has kind of become the big piece of things that we need to struggle with now where it, it's not discrete anymore. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there are situations where you have the cyber conflict paralleling the kinetic conflict, but increasingly it's almost as if, you know, the, right. the softer side of things has taken over and it is kind of this ongoing state. And I, I, I guess I would be hesitant to call it warfare because it might invoke a lot of responses that maybe not everyone would be comfortable with. I think, you know, it, but it is a significant challenge. And I think, I think of it as a challenge, for instance, to democracy, because I think it's something that democratic societies are not well equipped to deal with. And they, and there aren't proper responses. You know, what is the proper response to foreign interference using disinformation to manipulate events prior to an election? This is not only of relevance in the United States, but all around the world, I think. And the rules for responding to that are not clear. What is that when you have interference in the open space of, of a democracy? And, and, and there's absolutely, right? So the, the rules for um, what the thresholds are in international law that would allow certain responsive measures between states, um, you know, that, that's 
unclear, emerging, and evolving. Um, at the same time, your point is, is, I think, spot on. Democracies especially are challenged here because, as a practical matter, in order to deal with these, these assaults, right, these operations in the information space, um, I mean, you can take measures back against, potentially, the, the author of those operations, the other state. But really, to, to protect within your own society, now you're into all these questions about, well, are you not regulating speech? Um, there's a, a you know, right to receive information um, aspect of the First Amendment in the U.S., for example. And so there's a, there's a whole host of questions about how can you position yourself as a democratic government to protect against these types of operations when you know they're ongoing and they're insidious, um, challenging. Is this something that we mainly have to worry about from authoritarian regimes, or is that something that others are going to be involved in as well? When you think about creating a humanitarian effect. I mean, I, I think it is a wide open space, to be honest. I, I focus on authoritarian regimes because I think they actually have the intent and the capacity and the resources to do that. So mm -hmm. it's not to say there aren't other actors, and actually I think you could point to a number of instances around the world where you have sort of anti-democratic, illiberal forces from within countries that are also using that space to spread disinformation and so on. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, for me, it, this, this conversation gets so big so quickly. Right. And so when I think about sort of the, the relevance to humanitarian assistance or to the humanitarian dimensions of this, you know, I go back to these key examples where it's, it's very clear that there are vulnerable populations that are in need of assistance that are being targeted by determined, determined state actors. And the justification, in my view, that is being used by the state actors to do this is because they see the targeting, for instance, of the Uyghurs outside of China as being part of within the realm of the emerging body of norms around cyber conflict. Mm -hmm. Because the way that the Chinese government sees cyber conflict encompasses threats to national security, threats to, there's all sorts of language that they use, which I think is constantly being hammered out, as you know. And so um, they use that to justify the intervention in that space. And that's something that from, I think, from a democratic perspective, we should really be calling out. So when I started thinking about this panel, I was thinking in a very traditional way that we were thinking of refugees, displaced populations, those displaced by conflict. And those were the targets that we'd be thinking about. And how could cyber conflict either create those populations or exacerbate their condition? But where we've gone is a little bit different. We've gone more into targets who aren't necessarily displaced or the the victims of armed conflict, people who are targets because they are political targets, that they are the, in a situation that we would not necessarily consider uh, at risk, but they're being targeted by external forces using cyber means. So I think there's a, those aren't necessarily that divergent. Uh -huh. And there's, um, I mean, every state has uh, sort of right and interest to protect its own population. And so if the Chinese are targeting um, Uyghurs outside of China um, or interest groups that are, are supportive of or interested in, in the Uyghurs, 
those people are resident somewhere, and, and those governments would have an interest <coughs> in protecting. Um, but in terms of humanitarian access, and, and it's, I think the issues that this day is mostly mm -hmm. surrounding, right, you have these states that are, are actively blocking the delivery of aid um, and using that as part of their broader um, strategy um, and tactics to to defeat their you know their, their to manage their conflicts um, and and harm those populations. Well, yeah, I mean you can envision that they could use cyber operations in that regard, whether it's to influence outside groups not to help, to change your attitudes about. You know, these aren't refugees, these are terrorist organizations. When I was in the Army War College, we had a, a Chinese delegation come, and there was a general that, um, I mean, I'll give him credit, he took questions from the broad audience of Army colonels who were, you know, student in that class, but, uh, you know, very emphatically, the, the Uyghurs, that is a, that's a terrorist problem, right? I mean, and, and that's how they will want to approach that and, and shade um, people's views of that. And, and then in terms of delivering aid, just as you could use cyber capabilities to impede a military's ability to operate, you could potentially use cyber capabilities to impede the convoys and the communication to get the stuff in and all sorts of things as just another means of blocking access. And then the real interesting question is, well, what about interested states who um, want to see that aid get delivered? Can you address that? Can you take measures to counter that um, without implicating warfare? So I was going to actually the word counter use the word counter twice, but we'll do the easy one first. At least I hope it's easy. Um, do you see these states using cyber means to create a counter narrative that downplays or challenges the idea that there's a humanitarian crisis? And is that a useful technique? So the Chinese and the Uyghurs are a good example, which is their counter narrative is these are terrorists and we're doing the appropriate, you guys, you know, invaded Iraq, we should be able to invade Xinjiang. Um, what's the counter narrative look like in this space? Is that a tool that people are using? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that is definitely a tool. And this gets back to the information operations or, you know, however you want to term yeah. it. I think you can call it different things based on where you sit. But I think there is a deliberate counter-narrative that is being um, pushed. And that has always been the case. Obviously, I would say that, you know, with respect to this issue, you know, this the instance you talked about was from a few years ago, right? But. Um, the, the difference, I think, now is that there are many more avenues for that counter-narrative to take root and, and different forms that it can take. And, um, you know, we've, we can go into great detail about the types of disinformation operations, for instance, that are being employed in a number of spaces, but, but the use of coordinated inauthentic behavior online, you know, there's recently been a takedown of some Chinese government-sponsored um, troll armies and so on, uh, or bots and fake pages. So there's a lot of different avenues that can, that can spread these counter-narratives in a way that seem to be authentic, as you said, that sort of um, are very much more sophisticated than what we think of as the old ham-fisted kind of propaganda of old. There are ways to make it seem organic and true, and you can't trace where it's coming from. Absolutely. I think this is, um, you know, just by sort of analogy, the, the, the realm of espionage, um, 
generally recognized as something that is not prohibited by international law. States engage in espionage. Um, they've done so forever. The technologies now are changing the game in terms of scope and scale. Right? I think that's what you're sort of getting at. Uh, propaganda, information operations, this has been happening forever, um, but it's the nature of it, it's the scope, scale, and depth that the technologies are enabling that are causing us to sort of step back and I, I think, you know, do you just apply the old rule sets and say, you know, all's fair in, in propaganda, or do we really have to rethink this and, and try and, and contain this uh, in new ways? So there was something a few years ago called the Brundtland Commission, I think. I hope I got that right. And they, it shows that commissions can actually do something useful, which we always wonder about here at CSIS. They came up with this idea, R2P, responsibility to protect, right? What does a legitimate countermeasure to this look like? I, for example, have been thinking a lot about, suppose you could get the theme from Winnie the Pooh to play on Chinese networks, which would drive them wild. You know the Winnie the Pooh thing, right? That they think he looks like Xi Jinping, and so it's an insult, and you can't bring Winnie into China. So I just bring that up as an example of a very low-level response. What's a legitimate, should we respond? Do we have a responsibility to protect? What is a legitimate response? And you don't always have to be on the receiving end. Right, so I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, I think states you know, have to make their own determination about what responsibility they have, and, and I think you know, morally, generally, there should be a responsibility um, to protect uh, the unprotected, right? Uh, but it, as a matter of international law, what are your options becomes the question. Libya, Odyssey Dawn, you know, that was under a Security Council authorization to protect the civilians that were under direct attack. In order to use that level of force to, to, to counter something um, like that, you have to have that Security Council authorization because a, you know, a situation like Syria where you're attacking your own population is not a direct attack on another state. That would, that would involve that. But interestingly, there's this whole question, again, below that threshold, um, where international law isn't necessarily as clear. And, and I think there is room, potentially, for taking certain actions in cyberspace to counter, diminish the capacity of a state to engage in those actions it's taking that are harming the, you know, the, the, the refugees or the protected populations um, without necessarily having to recur to the, the Security Council. What would that look like? And of course, we're all thinking uh, uh, countermeasures. We're thinking defend forward. Um, right, and so this is, this is, I don't want to like, go down a separate right. debate right. rabbit hole that you're familiar with, but um, there, there is an ongoing debate right now about um, you know, if you look at the UK and the UK Attorney General's speech of about 18 months ago, yeah. where the UK's position... At Chatham House, if you're looking for it. One that, that I'm um, sympathetic with and, and have written on, but the UK's position is that there is a prohibition on the use of force that's clear in the UN Charter, right? There is a prohibition in customary international law um, in 
wrongfully interfering in the internal affairs of another state, and there are thresholds to that, which if one state engages in a prohibited intervention, violation of international law, the victim state would have the authority to take countermeasures, which are non-use of force, but otherwise unlawful actions that are rendered non-wrongful because they're in response, right? A little complicated. And then below that, there's this debate about whether sovereignty itself um, is, is a rule that prohibits certain actions that would have effects inside the territory of another state. Um, if, if you adopt the UK's position, then, then you could take actions in that space and they wouldn't be considered violative of international law. They wouldn't have to be countermeasures. You, you would have some maneuver space, I would say, for sort of low-level act operations that could be disruptive of um, covert disseminate, you know, deception campaigns and other things um, that would be directed at a, at a vulnerable population. So one question I'd want to ask Shanti is, do you think democracies have been too weak in responding to this stuff? Have we, are we, what, are we waiting for a sign from above, or do you think we're doing enough, or what, what's the deal here? Because you could make a case, every time I get the Washington Post and I open it and I see there's a China Daily insert, I wonder, what the heck are we doing? Too weak, enough, how should we, how should we respond? I think democracies, I think it's fair to say that democracies have been slow to understand what's happening um, and to understand that some of these new challenges and threats are operating within the open space of dem democratic societies. It's a space that by design is meant to be open and mm -hmm. vulnerable. It's meant to have all these ideas pour in and so on. And so the the reason it's so challenging, in my view, for, democ for democracies to address this is you can't simply do what authoritarian governments do, which is put the hammer down. You have, to, you have to respond in a way that still respects democratic values and respects what is it that makes democracy strong and resilient. And that can be a tough thing to figure out. And it's, I think, democracies all around the world, including those who are seeing this really powerfully, um, are, are really kind of having to think creatively about these issues. And also to think about this not just from, again, maybe not just from a warfare or security mm -hmm. perspective, but to really understand this in terms of democratic resilience and something that affects society. I agree. I think, um, but there are some fundamental distinctions to be drawn, right? A, a, a foreign, I mean, the marketplace of ideas generally should be um, as free and open a marketplace as possible. And, um, but you know, usually that's because you understand where the other idea is coming from, what its proponency is. Um, now, that's not always the case. There's sometimes hidden hands behind information domestically. That's a much difficult, more difficult question to manage. But a foreign state has no right of free expression, right? Um, certainly vis-a-vis -vis another state, and uh, I think from, from our perspective, the right to receive information is implicated. Um, I think that line stops, though, at the covert deception and disinformation activities of another state. One thing is open propaganda, because we can counter that with a, with a truthful narrative or a counter-narrative and let the marketplace work itself through. But where um, you know, you're following all sorts of um, personas on Facebook or Twitter, not knowing that that is, you know, the Russian IRA that's, that's pumping um, insidious information at you and, and divisive information at you, that's a different game, I think.
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I can't write fast enough. Oh, well, you'll just have to come back to it. Um, let me see if there are any questions out on the floor, and now give me a minute to keep writing. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, ooh, goodness, Ott. Uh, why don't we start here, and we'll work our way around the room. So please, and could you identify yourself, please? Thank you. Yoni uh, Bach with the MIT Lincoln Laboratory. And my question is, um, we talked a lot about the risks and the threats, but I kind of want to flip around and ask about some of the opportunities that cyber and security network world offers. In particular, to draw a thread from the last session and data and access and information being the underbelly, what cuts to the core of humanitarian action, and the possibilities that cyber also affords, recognizing that there are going to be some ethical lines there in terms of collection, and sort of ask, especially when we have now a cyber command that is that is um, utilizing these tools to get information, the same tools that an adversary can use to target, can also be used by a humanitarian to essentially access remotely populations to find needs better. Where's the line that you would want to draw in that, particularly as it pertains to the linkages between humanitarian organizations and some of the more structured institutions of state like Cyber Command for Intelligence Community? Well, so I think if I, if I like, understand the question fully, I think um, this, is, this is somewhat akin to the debate about hackback authority in the private sector for, from a cybersecurity perspective. I mean, if you're, if you're a non-governmental organization um, and you are using cyber tools to gain unauthorized access into systems, you're probably running afoul of the criminal laws of just about most every state that's taken you know, cognizance of this question. Um, and so that's a, I think that's a different debate and question about whether or not that should be considered illegal activity. Um, you know, it's, it's akin to some of the, you know, I saw some of the recommendations, uh, material support to terrorism. Is that really the case when you're providing support to, you know, refugees, um, right? So I think that's part of the, the issue in your question as opposed to what states um, have an interest in doing from a, from a, you know, foreign policy perspective and what the law says about what actions they can take, which I've already sort of described out a little bit. Shanti. I don't know that I have much value added on that question, except to say that I think we've all traditionally in this space, I would say, I, I used to work more in the development assistance community rather than humanitarian specifically, but there's some similarities. I think we typically saw ICTs, information technology, and so on as a tool and a benefit, and really only thought of it actually in that way as something that could be utilized more to more precisely deliver aid to populations that needed it, or to, you know, have things be more efficient, to have operations be more efficient, to make sure that the vulnerable were really being addressed and that their needs were being met. And I think we didn't pay enough, and this is sort of going back over a decade or so, did not pay enough attention to all the ways in which some of the things we've been talking about now, essentially, and which have now manifested themselves. And so I think in this community, if you're thinking about these issues, you kind of have to be cognizant of both and to understand it's not just the tools that are used in humanitarian assistance and so on, but it's also the overall environment, which is really affecting, I, I would say, everything. So I was involved in a humanitarian relief effort a while ago, and it was uh, in response to a tsunami in Southeast Asia. And one of the first things that the organization tried to do, the organization was called the Department of Defense, um, 
was establish communications in the area and we were having a hard time doing it so somebody got the bright idea it was it's a good idea so just take a credit card and go to the stores in bangkok and buy servers routers buy what you need to set up a wireless network and we'll figure out how to make it work and when we did that we found that unfortunately buying commercial equipment in bangkok brought with it unexpected friends right so what is that bad i mean in some ways they didn't interfere with the delivery of the service but how should we have responded to that well, and, and, I, right, and, and what we did eventually was like walk around and chase them and get them out. So. Well, you, you can right, take those measures, you're going to segregate those networks, you're going to do all sorts of things to, to minimize any risk. But um, I think, you know, unfortunately, where there's opportunity, there's vulnerability. That, that, this is what we're always struggling with. And you can think about all sorts of things, you know apps for phones that could identify you as in being in need for humanitarian assistance in a certain location and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, well, that's an upside. You, you could actually facilitate, use these tools to facilitate delivery and identification and all sorts of things. That is now a data source and a vulnerability point for anybody who, does, who doesn't care about those refugees in the same way um, and wants to exploit that, right? Is there a line then between simply collecting information and interfering with operations, is that the line we ought to be looking at here? Again, I think it depends on what your response, you know, the response you're thinking of constructing, right? We, we consider on a state-to-state -state level, like I said, espionage is not prohibited by law, but it doesn't mean we accept it and you don't engage in counter espionage to prevent it. But the, the means and methods you can use to counter these activities um, will be constrained and defined by how, you know, the, what the law says about what you're doing as well. So I wouldn't say that if, if we know people, you know, states or whomever are, are exploiting these humanitarian benefit tools for the wrong reasons that, that you wouldn't want to try and take measures to protect against that or counter it. It's just what measures you would be considering. Let me just, um, I'll just say, just, just to try to emphasize sort of the positive aspect of things that can yeah. be done. I was in Aceh after the tsunami and, and working not immediately afterwards, but sort of about a month or so afterwards sure. where there was still tremendous information needs on the part of the population. And, I, you know, I think part of it was everyone was going around trying to set up communications and trying to get people to network more effectively. And one, one of the things that, you know, we tried to look at was ways to enable populations to set up their own radio stations or, or media or ways to communicate just independently amongst themselves, so not have it be a kind of top-down, we're going to take your information or we're going to set up something for you, but enable more organic kind of self-generated types of communication, which isn't to say, you know, in hindsight, like maybe there are ways that also could have been manipulated. But at least that was something that was based on a specific information need from those populations. How did the space. organic effort work out? I can't remember. I remember people trying to set up radio stations, but did it work? Well, I'm, I think to you, some extent, yeah. You can I mean, say this you know, anonymously. I, <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't know. I mean, because unfortunately, there was so much going on at that yeah. time. I don't know whether those ideas actually then got translated into specific mm -hmm. networks. Of, I think there were many different um, manifestations of that. Okay, we had a bunch of questions. There was one in the third row there. Please identify yourself. Yep, no, you, ma'am. You. My question is, uh, 
Yes. Oh, microphone. Hi, my name is Dr. Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services USA. Uh, the word sovereignty in states has been uh, omnipresent in this discussion, and I would like some comments on that brave new world of mercenaries and groupings that are for hire for all sorts of entities and how one then addresses their actions. Uh, they can be inimical to a whole array of states, some of whom are already adversarial vis-a-vis -vis each other. This threat is only going to grow. There's been some very interesting literature on it. They're quite sophisticated. So how in this brave new world do we address these free-floating entities that have access to a great deal of money and uh, roam from conflict to conflict and are extremely destructive. Well, I mean, I would say as a, as a general matter, um, there's, there's a reason why states try to operate through these types of proxies, and that is to minimize the ability to attribute to that state the actions of those groups. Because under the law of state responsibility, in order to hold a state accountable, you have to demonstrate that those actions are attributable to the state, right? Um, when a state hires mercenaries, those actions are attributable to the state and they're subject to the law of armed conflict, they're subject to all the laws that would apply. If they're acting on their own and independently, then they're violating criminal laws undoubtedly somewhere and, and you have to seek to you know, use the tools available to address that. Um, but the challenging question becomes like, what, what can you do as a non-involved state knowing that there are quote unquote mercenaries unattributable to any other state actor that are taking those kinds of uh, you know, hostile actions in a certain area? Um, you know, if you take any sort of use of force actions against them inside that territory, you're committing a use of force against the sovereignty of that state. And have they given you consent to do that? Have they brought you in to do that? There's a host of challenging legal questions. Um, but they're not, they're not, um, they can't act with impunity. Whether you have the levers to enforce the laws that exist is a more challenging question, but mercenaries don't get to act with, um, you know, they're not, they're not free to act without legal consequence. Usually when you say non-state actors, people think you mean terrorists, but it's actually a broader term. Are you seeing this at all, Shanti? Is it, is this, do you see non-state actors playing in this game? Yeah, I mean, this takes me back to when I um, first got to Washington. I, I worked at, uh, on a project that was looking at the information revolution and the rise of non-state actors. And actually, at that time, people meant sort of civil society, right. being able to yeah. participate in the kinds of UN processes that we were talking about earlier, you know. And then it kind of shifted and morphed again, but I think we are in a, you know, if we're going to the very big picture, non-state actors have been tremendously empowered in this space of all, of all different stripes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the legal questions get sort of uh, not so clear on these issues. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, we got, let's start in the back, uh, the lady in red, please. We'll work our way up. Thank you. My name is Araba. Um, I would like your thoughts on the measure between these two areas, cyber 
effect and kinetic effect. Um, in the light of rapid technology development, 5G coming, do you think that the lines are going to be even more bled or merged? Consider um, non-state actors who use in disinformation or information to cause actual humanitarian crisis. I know there's a session on Yemen right now. How many people have died as a result of somebody remotely pressing a trigger? And that per will that person be considered an enemy combatant, for instance, because the person is not actually on the field holding a gun and shooting at people? Um, the use of social media by terrorist organizations to amass people or rally people to go on the field to fight. I don't know, I would like your thoughts on that. Thank you. Funnily enough, we were, I was talking with someone about this yesterday, a completely different topic. And this conversation has been sort of all over the map, but that's because the topic itself is not well explored, so bear with us. The conversation I was having yesterday is if, an if you create a new product and it's developed by an, an artificial intelligence, this is in the future, does it get patentable rights? Does it own IP rights? <laughs> I don't know, you know? Uh, yeah. we, we, you can flip a coin right now, but go ahead. Well, the, a little bit to unpack there. It, the fact that you are distant from the sort of hot battlefield in a, in a war, right, where there's people on the ground fighting each other, the fact that you are thousands of miles away doesn't mean you're not a combatant, right? So you're either a civilian, which means you're protected from attack, you're a combatant, which has legal you know, definitions and meanings, but essentially the, the authorized uniformed fighters in, in that, and I sitting you know, at, at Cyber Command when I was there, I'm in the US Army, I'm, I'm a combatant if we're in an armed conflict. Um, or you are a civilian who is directly participating in the hostilities. If you are engaging in certain activities that, that are hostile actions as part of those, that conflict, you have surrendered your protection for such time as you are participating in those hostilities and you can be the subject of attack. Th those are the basic rules of warfare. Um, you know, I, I think that's different though than you know, some of the questions about the, the diff distinctions between the cyber and kinetic. You know, if you use cyber to um, cause a server, if you look at what the Iranians are reported to have done against Saudi Aramco several years ago, um, where they destroyed, you know, a number of servers and other things, those are kinetic-like effects. Those will be treated just as a kinetic operation would be treated as far as the law is concerned. The challenging areas on the edge are um, if you're just impeding the functionality of a system to some degree, does that fall into the definitions of attack under the rules that govern warfare, or is it you know, outside of that? And, and there's an ongoing debate about the status of data itself and whether data is in fact a tangible object that can be the subject of attack. Um, and I think the law is gonna evolve in that area. 
uh, to say that it, it deserves the same type of protection as, as physical things deserve because of its value to us um, in the digital age. Yeah, we're not there yet, though. I mean, that's going to take a while. Why don't we get... Uh, I was going to ask if a bot could be a combatant, but we'll hold on that one. Uh, yeah, the lady in the... Hi, thanks very much. Uh, Jenny McAvoy from Interaction. Um, I have a, a, a few things I wanted to flag. Um, one is, um, regarding your question, who owns refugees' data? Um, is it the, the host state? Is it, is it the country of origin? And I think we need to be absolutely crystal clear. Refugees themselves own their own data. Um, they may choose to surrender that data, and we need to take responsibility for, for what we do with it. And, and for humanitarian organizations, this, this is the cornerstone of our relationship with them. We receive that data with their consent, um, and, and this is the thing that, that needs to be protected um, at all costs. And I think we need to go further um, as humanitarians to invest in their digital literacy. Um, so that they know what they're surrendering their data for, how that data is going to be used, and, and what risks might be associated with that. So just a, a plea to invest in, in digital um, literacy of vulnerable people. Um, the other thing that I, that I was curious about is um, nobody has really mentioned regulation of the private sector um, and the tech platforms, social media platforms, and, and so on. And yet we've seen in contexts like Myanmar, Facebook absolutely was used as the, as the platform to whip up a, a genocidal campaign. Um, so what is uh, the role of, of the private sector? Um, and I, I think to a certain extent we've seen the private sector step up for voluntary um, regulation or, or mitigation measures. Um, but what role should the law play? Um, and how can we help the law catch up um, with this misuse and abuse um, of tech platforms. Thank you. Let me ask your indulgence to hold on answering that question because that's actually my last question. Oh. And so one of the rules in Washington this year, you're allowed to be, it's the beaming to Facebook here. It's also beaming to China here. So, but if we can, if we can hold on that one. Sure. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about digital literacy. I mean, Chanthi, do you want to give a quick and dirty estimate of where you see that standing? And because it's a good one, yeah. that's why I was going to come back to it. And I was trying to think of how many Mark Zuckerberg jokes I could work in. <laughs> I, I agree that digital literacy is hugely important. And I think the idea of consent also is important. We were actually in this um, conversation I mentioned yesterday at the National Academies of Science. We brought up the idea of informed consent and what it really means mm -hmm. in a situation where is it possible to really give informed consent for any of us, much less vulnerable populations in a situation of conflict. And I think it's, we really have to rethink what that means. Um, but the digital literacy piece, I agree that that should be part of, if you are working with refugee or vulnerable populations, that should always be a part of it, that you can't presume that. But it also, and I would say this in the broader context of everything that we've been talking about, I frequently, because I'm usually part of these conversations, what do you do about disinformation and so on. And the thing that people always say is digital literacy, and I don't disagree with that, but that can't be the only thing. Because that kind of literacy, if you're talking about societies writ large and how, you know, going back to how democracies protect against these sorts of things, it can't be this sort of thing that we all go to and say, if only everybody, and usually it's the young people, if only the young people were more literate, were more, you know, literate on these issues. Well, it's not the young people. I mean, <laughs> young people are pretty, actually, they have digital literacy. It's, it's the old people. It's people that 
I won't impugn you guys. I mean, you know, people in my generation and above who um, if, don't quite get it. If you want, I have a, a clip from The Terminator where Arnold says, I'm old, I'm not obsolete. <laughs> Go so, ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... We, I don't think that so that can be the catch-all remedy to, I know that's not what you are suggesting, but I mm. think more broadly it can be part of a solution. It can't be the only solution because that's a much longer-term thing, whereas yeah. the challenges are much more immediate. Yeah, and I also, I mean, first of all, I've, um, I've been working in this space for some time, um, and I know absolutely that I've got apps going, I've, I use different platforms, and I... Um, dare say I haven't read word for word the terms of service and the user agreements that are heavily lawyered and I think we're all in the same boat so um, I'm relatively literate in the space but I also am giving up data all the time without really having a full understanding of how that data is going to be used and or protected. Um, I, I just, when you're in a situation of um, you know vulnerability in, in, in these populations, mm -hmm. I, that's a tall order and then it just brings to mind for me the question of, okay, so let's say you sit down and you explain all this in depth. The answer for them is, well, then I'm not giving you consent, right? I'm yeah. not giving you my data, which isn't necessarily helpful as opposed to them not having to worry about the protection of that data when it's given. Um, I, I guess the way I was thinking about it was I was thinking back to one of the problems we used to have is, is stateless persons. And so somebody shows up and they have no documentation. They might just have only the clothes on their back. And so then what sort of document do you issue them and what identity do you issue it to? And so there will be a potential in the future to relatively quickly um, look for identities. Right? You can already do this to some extent now. So if they had a Facebook profile to pick on them again, you could search and find that and that would help us, might help establish their identity. So I was thinking more, this could actually be a plus for the stateless person problem. You know, you, you, the usual, when I, a long time ago, you would just give them some UN thing and whatever name they gave you was the name you'd use. But um, that might be, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. There could be benefits from this. Is if, you, if they consent to sharing data, you might know them better. Okay, we had other questions. And we'll come back to the rule question because that was my final question. Go ahead, please. Hi there. <clears throat> my name is Paz. I work with Halifax International Security Forum. One of the things that I don't know much about and hopefully you can shed some light on is um, the actual I know there aren't really regulations, but you know there are groups like ICRC who have come out with this huge plan as to what they're going to do with all their data and how they're going to protect it. 
and that's great for a behemoth of a, um, an organization like them. Um, in the United States, you know, USAID and all those folks um, subcontract to the nth degree to deliver services and data is being collected there. What, if any, trends do you see or foresee where, you know, all of this information isn't being collected in just a few places? It's being collected by multitudes of organizations who are not necessarily working together um, or with necessarily any expectation or requirement to protect that data. Um, I could be wrong, but I, that's not what I've observed up to this point. Um, you know, for international actors who, you know, don't play by the same playbook that we do here in this room, um, are there expectations being created um, amongst, you know, donors and um, aid providers where it's great for us to talk about we need to protect data, but where's the accountability? You might have stumped the band there, but I'll take a shot at it. <laughs> which is, um, I, this is, I, I'm making an assumption here, but normally you would say that the uh, laws of the state in which the organization was resident apply to its treatment of data. So if it's a European organization, it's GDPR. If it's um, somewhere else, I don't know. Whether you could extend that, that might be an interesting idea. You know, if you had some agreement to extend uh, common rules for data protection. But I, I, I don't know enough about this to say that my answer is conclusive, but I, I don't know of any efforts to do that. That doesn't mean there isn't discussion somewhere. It wouldn't surprise me if there was. But, you know, I mean, one of the challenges with accountability for the holders of data um, is one, oftentimes the diffuse nature of a breach. Um, you know, this isn't like a product liability situation where there's a direct and concrete harm that you can identify the individual and you know we learned in law school for suing someone for torts right duty breach causation damages if you can't make out all of those you don't have a case and so oftentimes what's what's the damage you can demonstrate from my, my loss of my data um, you know I'm quite certain as someone who's you know part of the whole OPM breach that lots of folks that I don't want to have my data have my data um, but how can I establish that as a matter of damages for accountability through like legal liability regimes or then you have accountability through you know civil or criminal you know violations and that that really we're not in a place there yet necessarily where we've gotten the regulatory space over the holders of data um, that they can be held as accountable and frankly, I just don't know, to the extent that exists, how that plays for non-governmental organizations and the kind of organization you're talking about. So um, I'm going to open with an anecdote, which is that I was on a panel about a year ago with an uh, Indian police commissioner. And her district has about uh, 1.8 million people. And it's one of the districts where they have a lot of lynchings. And uh, so I said, well, how come? What are, you know, What's going on? And she said that. Uh, unknown groups were spreading false information about child stealing and body part harvesting and stuff like that, uh, and targeting individuals in villages. And they were using social media, I think she mentioned WhatsApp, social media as a way to, um, to build up popular discontent. And it was very difficult for the Indians to deal with. Uh, and so they had a blunt instrument, which is just shut the networks off in the area affected, right? 
And frankly, speaking for myself, if that's the only tool you've got, you're going to use it, right? But then this question comes up of what kind of rules would you like to see? What kind of rules do we need around social media? How do you get transnational application of the rules? So those are three questions. We'll start with them all, but let me start with Shanti. What kind of rules would you like to see around this that would make things better, if at all humanly possible? You know, I, this is a really big question, it the is. rules and regulations question, so I, I don't think I'm going to get to this satisfactorily. I think, you know, there is a raging <laughs> debate about this right now for obvious reasons, and um, you know, we do have ways to think about these issues. I will say we're not just completely in the dark. And if you look at things in the U.S. context, there's a lot of debate right now about this particular provision called Section 230 of the Communications De Decency Act, which a lot of these hinge on, which mm -hmm. it's, it's whether the platforms can be held liable for certain kinds of content on the platforms. And I won't go into that because there are huge conferences organized around that specifically, but I do think that you know, we have some basic concepts. I do think we have to be careful, you know, coming from someone who believes in these fundamental, which I think are fundamental to our democracy and democracies around the world, we do protect speech. We, we, we not only protect speech, but we say we have the freedom of speech. And the U.S. is somewhat different in this regard. You know, mm. we have a um, somewhat of a different take because of our First Amendment tradition. That doesn't mean that there can't be anything that, that there's nothing that can be done. And so I, I don't know where I come down on the regulation space yet, um, because I, I, I think it has to be a mix of things that both preserves our unique um, properties and our way of encouraging free expression, but directly also addresses some of these things. And we have seen proactive efforts, as I think the person mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, by the companies to try to address these issues, which I think are, you know, the only reason we know about some of these operations because they actually, okay, they flag them, they're starting to take them down. I don't know if that goes far enough, you know, in what's being done. But I will say, since this is something that we focus on where I am, that I don't think that government regulation and sort of the state, you know, the rules approach is the only tool in the toolkit. I do think that because these operations, these very particular types of disinformation operations are happening within the open space of democratic societies, it's up to societies also to be involved in the solution. And it can't just be kind of a top-down heavy approach. So this goes, I mean, to the digital literacy piece, but also to the ways in which these things can be flagged. Um, and analyzed by mm -hmm. actors within civil society. And actually, if you look around the world, if you look at Central and Eastern Europe, which has long been on the receiving end of disinformation coming from their neighboring countries, um, you know, the, you'll see that they have developed a robust civil society capacity to identify these operations to the extent that they can and then educate publics around them. Is so that, that's another thing that I think we have to... Is that content, they're doing content mediation or they're identifying actors? What are they doing here? I think they're doing a lot of different... They're monitoring content, they're identifying actors, they're getting ever more sophisticated in the ways that they can analyze these types of operations. You know, we've come a very long way in the civil society space mm -hmm. from even just a few years ago, and part of that is through cooperation with the companies, you know, who do partner with organizations to try to share data with them. There push, there's certainly a push for some of these companies to be more transparent about that. I think Twitter has been the most open because of the nature of its platform and other reasons, but, you know, to try to to have some more of these partnerships to get at the at the issues as well. Yeah, I mean, I, not a lot to add there. I agree. Um, you know, 
the companies are struggling with it now. Part of the challenge, though, is, is really getting society to move the companies, right? Um, getting groundswell um, from the consumers to, to force companies to change their business models um, to react to that. And again, I think part of it is the diffuse nature of the problem. I, if you tell people over and over again that um, you know, your Internet of Things toaster um, is going to present these vulnerabilities, well, what are those vulnerabilities? Right? Well, you know, your toast may burn, probably not what we're talking about, but well, you may be, your toaster might be a hop point for a botnet that might be used down the road for something, something. And okay, hmm, that sounds interesting, but I can, you know, that, that toaster I can get and, and without an, you know, maybe even economically beneficial for me to get it, I'm gonna still get that toaster, right? So there's a diffuseness to the problem from a market perspective. And then you move into the regulation space, which um, that's got its own challenges and struggles. And the more it's the government regulation, the more you're upping the First Amendment and freedom of speech implications of what you're doing, which presents you know, distinct challenges. If a platform like Facebook wants to say, we're only gonna put X type of content on the platform, they can do that. There's nothing legally right, prohibiting them. They're not bound by the First Amendment. They're bound by their customers who would would vote en masse and leave the platform, so they're struggling with that. But once you start introducing the government and regulation, now you do implicate the, you know, the First Amendment and, and there are a lot of other difficult challenges. So it's nice to know it's easy to solve, right? We don't have time to really do extraterritoriality. I apologize for mismanaging. Because when I talk to a lot of developing countries and they feel this kind of surprised me, but I said, okay, we have a negotiating agenda internationally. What do you want on the agenda? What should we talk about? And a number of developing countries, this is not in a UN context, said, we want to talk about uh, the influence of big tech companies and how we deal with big tech companies and how we deal with the problems that big tech access to social media creates. So that's a really difficult one because we are talking about a transnational application of law. There is no international agreement on this. But if you did have to come up with a rule, either national or international, what kind of rule would you want to see? Shanti, you may want no rule, but <laughs> what would you put in? So response is a good one. One of these company, countries had a, a immediate problem. They went to the American service provider uh, they got the response um, six hours after the uh, bombing attack, right? Maybe immediate response. What kind of rule, even light touch, what kind of rule would you want to see? So I, I have a lot of horror stories for big tech companies, but, <laughs> which is not fair, right? Because that's all I'm going to hear. What, what would you have as a rule? I mean, I think actually just something I touched on already, which is better transparency around the information that they're keeping close hold right now that would enable outside researchers to be able to more fully explicate to the public what is happening. Because right now you're not really seeing that. And so, I mean, I don't know if I would call it a rule, but I would certainly encourage that because I think it would encourage better understanding of the problem. Okay, that's interesting. Gary? Yeah, I think also um, the level of, of sort of cooperation and information sharing 
um, on these matters. And I think if you set some sort of standards that said there's not discretion on these in these instances, th that would help um, responses because generally you know that that's hit or miss and you'll get cooperation from some states or partners and, um, you know, the, the, the companies doing business in those countries and you'll get zero cooperation from others. And the, the bad actors know where those zones of, um, you know, sort of impunity and free maneuver are. And they'll stage out of those, those places. Uh, anyone in the room have a rule they want to throw in the kettle? Do you have a, is that a question or a? Go ahead, please. Um, so what international efforts do we have going forward for laws in cyber crimes? I think, oh. I think like uh, humanitarian space is a perfect kind of innocuous way to get in the door. Because if you are impeding access to humanitarian aid, if you're a state, then that should be something that would fall in the realm of humanitarian crime, I would think. Is there, are there any efforts um, to look at that? Is there any appetite for that? Because I know the UN is not the body, right? Because you've got two main actors on the UN that would not agree on that. But I think the humanitarian space is where you can actually get some groundswell and some legal um, desire to protect those people through those populations. So actually, the UN is doing a little. It's UNODC, the UN Office of uh, Drugs and Crime. And because they're all cops, you know, and cops always get along, the, the cops are actually making progress. It's not the, pol it's not the political types. It's definitely not the lawyers. Um, so the, the cops in UNODC are making some progress. How far that will go, um, it's relatively new. There is this debate, as you know, about, well, we already have the Budapest Convention. Why do we need the Council of Europe Cybercrime Treaty? Why do we need anything else? And you have other people saying, no, we have Shanghai Cooperation Organization rules, but the, the, the cops are so far on a positive track. So that's a probably, it's, it's not something we usually cover here, UNODC, but they seem to be doing some good work. Um, any final questions? Go ahead. Oh, we, wow. Okay, we got three final questions. Then we definitely have to close out. <laughs> National security issues. Um, but Going along with that, um, what is the baseline crime level in this arena for cyber and the humanitarian? Um, you know, whenever there's money transfer, there's always the potential for um, um, theft. And so I'm wondering, is there a baseline of how much that is going on right now? Because, you know, even when you um, buy real estate, you have to be very careful that you're um, transferring the money um, so no one else gets it. Uh, it would, there's a fair amount of work on any money laundering, and so that's where you would see this, both at a... Uh, but, but that's, right, that's state by state. Yeah. Right, I mean, so the United States could look at a particular situation, and if we think that there are, um, entities that are, that are trying to impede humanitarian assistance or access, um, and we know that they're using illicit, you know, money transfers and other things, potentially you could use your, your criminal laws to try and address that. Of course, that, that assumes that you're going to get the grab on who, you know, the people, you can bring them into your courts, you get jurisdiction over them. There's no international law 
that, that criminalizes those activities said I'm not aware of. No, but those are state by state. Yeah, it's cooperative arrangements, but right. I'm getting the sign that I'm standing between you and food, so how about if the last two questions, if you come up and ask us afterwards. Thank you very much for joining us. Please join me in closing. <laughs> Thank <clears throat> you.